I'm Josh, and you have found your way to Dharma Punks NYC. And I hope your visit will be interesting and thought-provoking and calming. We had a wonderful gathering, 50-plus people at Center Yoga, and we'll be doing it again the first week of November. Um, I'll come back with the exact date next week. But if any of you are around New York and want to join us, please visit the website, dharmapunksnyc.com, and you'll find not only all of the previous talks, announcements, and information about gatherings. If you'd like to support my work, which is entirely offered without charge, everything is by donation only. So the Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC. And the PayPal button is on the website and the podcast site. And there's a Patreon if you would like to do that. And there I put a bunch of talks that are not on the podcast site there from the retreats. Um, and so hopefully uh, some of you will support the work there. This week, we're talking about changing how we bond and relate to others, and uh, especially addressing the underlying sticky patterns that lead to ongoing secession of relational uh, difficulties in our life. And we'll be talking about it both from the perspective of contemporary psychology as well as from the perspective of um, early Buddhism. And I like to do that in my talks, blend uh, the Dharma, especially as laid out originally in the Pali Canon, uh, which is uh, the original teachings, some 2,500 years old, with teachings of today. Uh, especially in new cutting-edge therapeutic modalities and clinical psychology and uh, also uh, empirical research in neuropsychology. So anyway, let's take a look at how we attach. So as I'm sure you've heard me, if you've been a visitor before to this uh class, you've heard me prattle on about how we're all born with a core drive to connect with others, to get their attention, to be seen in the eye of the other. And that's for proximity and protection, which is the first uh, core drive. The second is for somebody who will understand the internal experience that we're signaling through our gestures and our behavior. We're always from childhood on uh, in some way signaling our internal states to others for intention. And that's the foundation of our emotional life to display internal states for others. Then there's soothing and we need that. We need to have someone who's available to down-regulate our nervous system. And 
Of course, we also need appreciation, someone who not only delights in our basic existence, but also someone who fosters growth, who encourages us to uh, continue on our developmental journey to inquire new skills and capabilities. So, as I said, we do all this by signaling our internal states, whether we feel hot, cold, hungry, uncomfortable, overwhelmed, uh, all the different internal states. We signal to others via eye contact, gestures, cries, facial expressions, and that's essentially what our emotional life boils down to, the different ways that we signal what's going on in us. And it's not something that's guided by conscious cognitive processes of the brain. It's generally emotions are uh, have a very strong, implicit, automatic quality to them. How caregivers respond to these signals for attention create, over time, durable expectations that will guide our beliefs about others through our life. And it's not conscious beliefs, it's just all those emotional expectations we have about other people, whether they'll be available for us when we need help, whether we can expect people to like us in novel situations, whether we feel uh, people will uh, become unpredictable, um, whether we'll be abandoned. We have all this host of unconscious expectations that were developed through the first two or three years of our lives during the attachment phase. A great psychologist named John Bowlby synthesized this into the phrase internal working models. You don't have to know that. Basically, he said there are these unconscious guides that we all have that are essential a map of how we believe other people will act in relationship to us. And uh, they not only predict how other people will act towards us, but they also give us uh, impulses to respond, to act. So this Bowlby who came up with these phrases, I believe in the late 50s, early 1960s, um, maybe in the 50s, um, he wasn't the first, of course. Uh, Freud noted that adults have what's called uh, uh, repetition compulsion, where we repeat the traumas and the emotional wounds of our childhood in our adult life. We find people who will help us. Uh, we don't consciously do it, but we enlist people who will re with us replay the traumas of abandonment, rejection, shaming, or the positive events sometimes, but most generally the, the negative ones are repeated in adult life. Um, and Freud noted that throughout our lives, we're also through a process called transference. We're projecting our unconscious, unresolved emotions that uh, towards our parents onto the important romantic figures around us and the important friendships. And of course, these ideas in no way have uh, become ant uh, antiquated. 
uh, in psychodynamic and schema therapies and depth therapies. Um, everybody uses terms like schemas or um, emotional beliefs, and they all mean the same thing, that we have these unconscious predilections based on our early childhood experience that are repeated in our adult life. And they are based on these expectations that we, how we expect other people to act in regards to us. And also these impulses to protect ourselves. So let's dive in a little deeper and use some real concrete examples in childhood. When a child has an available, soothing, appreciative caregiver who delights in their child's development, smiles when the child enters the room, um, the child develops a durable sense that they're safe to explore, and the child interacts confidently with others uh, around. And you can see this as early as year one and a half, 18 months, there's a famous a test called the strange test where the mother brings her 18 month child into the room and in the room there's a stranger to the child the stranger to the child is actually a child psychologist or therapist after a while the mother walks out of the room <clears throat> and secure children who have a good durable bond will respond positively, I mean, they'll first be a little upset for a while that the mother left, but then they'll turn to the stranger and they'll interact and they will gravitate to the stranger to regulate their emotions and to help them acclimate to this new environment where the mother's not there. So they're confident. And as they grow up, these will be people who express their needs, are calm in relationships, are capable of creative expression, are people who um, uh, don't have imposter syndrome or core shame. In general, these are, in many ways in my work, the mythical healthy people that I never get to meet. Uh, because, well, I do sometimes, but most of the time, uh, people with secure attachment are not uh, always reaching out to a Buddhist pastor for counseling. Uh, and that's fine, because all of the attachment styles are uh, wonderful to work with. If the child has unreliable inconsistent caregivers who sometimes are available, sometimes soothing, sometimes uh, pay attention, but other times are too caught up in their stresses, their anxieties, are uh, not available due to work, or there's a divorce, uh, and so on and so forth. The child can grow up with an expectation, an unconscious expectation of abandonment is always possible in every relationship. And so these children become, as they grow up, hypervigilant in relationships. Their sympathetic nervous systems become activated. And in the strange test, you can immediately spot a anxious child because they cling to the mother when they're brought into the room with a uh, psychologist. 
And when the mother leaves, the child becomes distraught, standing by the door, wailing, uh, trying to ratchet up their emotions to get the mother to return. The child never turns to the psychologist, never bonds with anyone else. And when the mother does return, or the father, I should say, they, they're not particularly soothed. They're still expecting to be abandoned at any moment. So... These are individuals who grow up to be very hypervigilant in relationships. They're sympathetic. They are prone, obviously, to anxiety disorders. Um, over time, they will gravitate because the early lack of reliable attachment has created an expectation that that's what love is. So they will gravitate towards partners who are emotionally or physically unavailable very often they'll gravitate to what's called avoidant partners, people who are always have one foot out the door. And they'll put all their eggs into one basket. And they will um, learn very early on to what I call trade sex for intimacy, which is they will uh, jump in too quickly to intimate sexual endeavors before they feel securely attached to someone. And they're doing that to, to somehow concretize the relationship and not be abandoned. So this is this ongoing pattern of offering sex in the hope or engaging in sex very quickly in the hope that it will uh, make the relationship more secure, which it clearly doesn't very often. These are individuals who will grow up to struggle struggle to state their needs clearly. They'll hint at what they need rather than state it overtly. And they'll engage in what's often called protest behaviors, which are the tendency to, uh, one, they'll ruminate, they'll check their, their smartphones for text messages. And when they don't come, they'll become increasingly agitated and angry. Then when their partner finally does reach out, they won't pick up the phone as a form of punishment uh, because they want someone, their partners, to feel the same amount of pain and anxiety that they've experienced. Um, so there's a host of uh, long-term issues that come up with anxious attachment, not just in relationships, but in terms of physiological, psychological well-being, including uh, uh, all kinds of digestive disorders have been associated with it and immune dysfunctions and stuff, because the longer we're expecting abandonment in childhood and adult life, we stay up in the sympathetic nervous system. We release cortisol, which stops the immune system from functioning as well, and it also halts digestion. So there's so many um, uh, struggles associated with uh, inconsistent caregiving in childhood. Now, a third group, we've already covered secure and anxious, a third group are those who experience consistently unavailable or disappointing caregivers, caregivers who are emotionally engulfing or overwhelming, who never manage to soothe or downregulate their children's uh, autonomic nervous systems. And these children become indifferent to attachment. They are essentially, they switch off 
the need to bond deeply and intimately with another. If you look at a child in the early strange test, unlike the anxious child who will stand by the door waiting for the parent to return, upset, ratcheting up their emotions to be heard, the uh, child that is avoidant uh, and grows up to be a dismissive adult, will be utterly disinterested in the fact that the mother or father has left the room. They won't, they won't even really react. What the child will do, even at one and a half, will be to move to one area of the room and play with toys and self-stimulate through just uh, uh, solitary endeavors, and they will be indifferent to the uh, the rewards of connecting with others. And these are adults who always have one foot out the door in relationships. They minimize commitments. They tend to process setbacks on their own. They're reduced, they have reduced expectation of others. Their wounded sense of self can be protected at times by an inflated narcissistic ego structure, which means they compensate for these wounds by having a sense of grandiosity about their importance and about the relative um, uh, uh, lack of value of others. And these are people whose deepest fears are not abandonment. These are people who are constantly expecting to be, to lose their autonomy, to, to be engulfed, to be controlled by others. And these are people that have become at times very prone to conspiracy theories. These are the ones that uh, in the extreme might be marching on Washington saying that the election was stolen or that there's someone, uh, there are people who are trying to take away their freedom. Um, these, that's just in the most extreme cases of, uh, of avoidant attachment. Um, and then finally, there are those children who were frightened uh, by their overwhelming, either abusive or ranging or drunk uh, parents, or maybe their borderline parents. And these are individuals who become what's called disorganized in their attachment. They're, they have erratic behaviors and will very often run from safe people. They have a tendency in adult life to trauma bonding. Well, they'll they will become connected with people who've abused them over uh, rather than leave the unsafe relationships. They'll leave entirely safe relationships. They have a tendency to seek substances that will numb them. And opiate addiction is very common. Um, disorganized individuals are prone to dissociation. And in the strange test, the disorganized child will have some of the more disturbing responses. When the, when the parent is there in the room, the child will freeze, neither moving towards the parent nor moving away. When the parent leaves the room, the child may go and hide. The child, like the other insecure attachments, will not reach out to the adult to um, for any sense of soothing. In general, securely attached people, when something stressful happens in their life, they seek support from a wide range of people, wide range of people. They'll go to whoever is available. They tend to be calmer in the face of 
uh, distressing situations, and they will practice as well a good balance of self-soothing. Many of them are have a whole host of um, uh, different tools to help regulate their emotions. They're generally by far and more by far and away more confident in being creative. Anxious individuals have what's called activating strategies. They become more and more angry or distraught whenever they experience any abandonment by the primary attachment figure. And they will keep ratcheting up the emotions in the hope that it will they will be seen or noticed. And it becomes a very dramatic experience to try to uh, to help when someone's fully in that hypervigilant state where they're fully expecting to be abandoned. There's a kind of terror of being left. Uh, with those who have avoidant or dismissive, they employ the exact opposite. They just deactivate all of their emotions, their affects, as a way to not only not be aware of their own needs, so they won't have to go to others for help, but also it, they just will act as if everything's cool, everything's fine. I don't know why you're asking me anything. Why do you, you know, let's change the subject. It's a way to keep people at a distance. And one of the constant responses to stress for the dismissive or avoidant will be to seek out a solitary distracting activity uh, big ones are video games or running or any kind of solitary dopamine uh, secreting activity where you, somebody can spend hours avoiding the stressful situation in their life. Now, just to note, attachment behaviors can be fluid. Um, someone who's Ang who's anxious, who dates another anxiously attached person, one of them might suddenly become dismissive or avoidant because their partner doesn't fit the mold, doesn't match the childhood experience of a unreliable abandonment. So they no longer have the feelings to guide them towards committing or connecting to the partner. Likewise, I've, I've known many people in, in the counseling work who are avoidant, and if they meet another avoidantly attached person, they might become anxious. So simply because we have a predilection doesn't mean we're always in that predilection. And in fact, uh, we'll talk about it, but when either an anxious person or avoidant person winds up in a long-term relationship with someone who's secure, over time, they over time become earned secure. They gravitate towards a greater degree of security themselves. So our, all in a nutshell, our caregivers shape how we act with primary partners, but we also have other additional models that occur in childhood, for instance, relationships with our siblings, if we had them, or with school peers can influence how we develop friendships in our adult life, as well as how we work with colleagues and co-workers. So <clears throat> today we're really talking more about primary attachments, but all of these insights as well can be seen in other relationships as well. Now, here's first a little bit of the, uh, the kind of uh, disturbing news, which is I mentioned the 
the strange test that happens with children when they're 18 months of age. Well, guess what? There's a lot of longitudinal studies where they track down these children as they grow up and met with them 30 years later and gave them the adult attachment test. And it turns out that 80% of us will stay in the exact same attachment style we had at 18 months throughout our entire lives. In other words, these patterns are, well, I'll say grievously sticky. They are very, very, very deeply embedded. And why is that? Well, uh, the region of the brain, the right orbital frontal, the right anterior cingulate, uh, and the right amygdala, amygdala, which are forming in the first couple of years of life, are what hold these internal working models. And uh, these are areas of the brain that after about age five, when consciousness migrates from the right brain to the left brain, we become increasingly uh, more language bearing and we develop long-term memories and all that. Um, over time, these these models become all but inaccessible to our conscious minds. In other words, they're in the background, they're influencing how we act with others, but we're unaware of them at the same time. Well, how does that work, you might ask? How do we have these unconscious models that are determining how we respond to important people in our life? Well, it's actually a little simpler than it sounds. Um, the regions I mentioned that were being formed in early life, the right orbital frontal, right anterior cingulate, and all that, um, these are regions that, uh, one, represent emotions into our decision-making process, but they don't do it consciously. They just read our bodies, read our emotions, and then they influence all of our choices where they create strong feelings in the body that guide how we respond. So when we're at a party and if you meet someone and you're evaluating whether you like them or not, it's not a conscious process. It's an unconscious process. You either feel good and relaxed and comfortable when they're around, or you feel anxious, uncomfortable, tight. You want to get away from them. And those feelings are being conveyed through your body and through underlying emotions. And all you really are aware of, or I'm really aware of at the moment is that, oh, I like this person, or oh, I don't like this person. They're making me uncomfortable. But that's about the degree that most of us are aware of those feelings that are influencing how we uh, attach and bond and interact with others. It should be noted that one of the key uh, goals of Buddhism is to become aware of the feelings arising and passing in our bodies so that we can actually gain some ability to override these unconscious, these unconscious feelings that are pushing us one way or the other. And these feelings, again, are determined by early life experiences. So the anxious child who had an um, unreliable, inconsistent caregiver will grow up to be an adult who will become physically excited when an unreliable adult uh, uh, is in their path. 
because they'll recognize that. And it will remind them when that person pays attention to them, it will remind them of the excitement of their parent in early life, giving them finally attention. And they'll chase after that excitement. Many people call it fireworks or magic or that sense of like uh, this sense of uh, just true uh, excitement, electric charge that people who uh, had anxious attachment or avoidant attachment, when they meet the the corresponding individual, they'll feel and they'll chase after the excitement. Secure people uh, don't chase after excitement primarily. They actually are responding most positively to people who elicit feelings of safety in them because their childhood experience with caregivers was a feeling of secure of safe, of taken care of. So that's who they'll respond to, people who elicit feelings of safety. And that means they'll go on and they will elicit far more uh, enduring partnerships with uh, their partners. So one of the classic uh, pitfalls is what's called the anxious avoidant trap. Anxious individuals, because they had largely emotionally unavailable or inconsistent, I should say, partner uh, parents will gravitate towards emotionally inconsistent avoidant partners. And avoidant people who had overwhelming mothers or fathers will gravitate towards anxious partners. They create this anxious avoidant bond. And these are tra- can be not always, but can be very frequently very tragic, dramatic, unfulfilling relationships where one constantly feels abandoned and the other constantly feels engulfed or entrapped and is constantly trying to get away. And if you didn't watch it, there was a kind of a classic version of this, of a trial with two famous actors earlier on this year uh, that involved the anxious avoidant dynamic. So I'm not going to go any further into that because they both seem to be very litigious individuals. I'm just joking. Uh, So anyway, um, in lots of studies, uh, including attachment manifestations and daily interactions, which is a new one, uh, it's been shown that when we're in stress or conflict, not only with our primary partners, but with other people as well, we'll gravitate towards the course survival strategies the anxious person will constantly put all their eggs in one basket, trying to connect with one person. They'll become obsessive with connecting with just one individual, and everyone else will, will be deemed to be insufficient. The secure person will be calmer and will reach out to whoever is available, be patient, and find someone who will help them process the experience. And avoidant people will simply shut down their emotions, not acknowledge that anything is happening or will go off and find some solitary endeavor as a way of processing. So you might say, well, Josh, this is all interesting stuff, but what does it have to do with Buddhism? And I will tell you that right now. It turns out that throughout the history of the Dharma, the 
Buddha and other Buddhist commentaries were deeply aware of this divide between secure and insecure individuals. In fact, in one of the oldest teachings in the Abhidhamma, the Pugli, Pugala Panati, and uh, don't hold me to that pronunciation, I'm just terrible with Pali, but um, the Buddha or the Buddhist commentaries noted that there are four different types of people. One group was skillful, who were capable of balancing a bulk of relationships. They, they balance work and friendships with practice. They see the good in others, and they have the conviction to seek goals. And I will just say it now that I tend to read that as secure individuals, because it sounds a hell of a lot like secure attachment. Then there was a second group, which were called loba or desirous or clinging individuals, people, and they, they use the example of people who go to a party and the clinging anxious person, they say, goes to the party and becomes fixated on one person one individual, one object, and will become overly excited and desirous and chase after that one person or one thing. And I read that as classically anxious. And then there was also dosa or aversive individuals who they say at a party are quick to find fault with everyone there with the food, and will just stand with their arms crossed in front of their chest, shaking their head and judging everything and finding it less than uh, uh, adequate. And I uh, will associate this with dismissives. And then finally, there was a group called Moha, which was delusional, people who were lost in clouds of dissociative thought, and we're checked out. And to me, this is classically disorganized attachment. So whether you see the same correlation as I see it or you don't, but the fact that there are one secure group and three insecure group uh, people and the fact that they're broken down by desiring versus aversive, to me, is pretty clearly there's a lot of correlation there. So... Um, According to the Buddha, these predilections are actually developed. He lists it in the Paticca Samapada is developed very, very early on in life, a stage he calls Nama Rupa. Nama Rupa is the early life experiences that shape our perceptions of the world. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this sounds very, very much like the attachment phase to me and that the observations are very, very similar. And in this phase, all of our underlying tendencies called anusayas in early Buddhism, or actually they're pronounced anusayas, um, these are unconscious predilections that create feelings that guide us in all our life. So there you have it. The same basic insights that the early life interactions are deeply influential, deeply determinative about how we will act in our adult life, that they create these unconscious patterns. And 
the Buddha even says that these un- anusayas, these unconscious patterns, generally fall into one group of people that constantly cling and try to get latch on to one person to solve or one thing to solve all of their suffering or their dukkha. Whereas there's another group, patiga, which are aversive and just want to get away. So we see the same inclinations, either ratcheting up emotions or down-regulating and just disconnecting. Now, some might say, I thought that Buddhism was all about non-attachment. And I hate to break it to you, but that's actually not the case. Uh, Non-attachment in the bad sense was a word called upadana or clinging. And the Buddha lists four types of clinging, and not one of them has to do with people that are secure at all. They, the Buddha lists in the four types of clinging. He says clinging to unreliable pleasures, including unreliable people, unreliable sensory fun pleasures. The second, he said, was attaching to our rituals, our daily habits and routines. So if we want to go to yoga every day, but the yoga class gets canceled and we suffer, that's clinging to a ritual. Then there's clinging to our beliefs about the world. And we see that in all of the political debates of our time. And finally, clinging to our views about ourselves. So not any of them problematizes attaching to people who are secure. In fact, let's delve in a little deeper. In the half sutta, the Buddha said, when was asked by his attendant, Ananda, is it true that wise friends are half of the spiritual path? The Buddha said, don't say that, Ananda. Wise friends are the entirety of the path. They're the whole of the path. They're the foundation of the path. If you don't have them, then you're not going to have a foundation for your spiritual growth. In the Sigalavada Sutta, which is the famous sutta where the Buddha talks about uh, to people who don't aren't in monasteries, they're known as householders, people who are not monastics. And he's giving this whole teaching about how to be a Buddhist if you're not a monastic. And the entire sutta is about in his own words, seeking out those who are reliable and available in both good times and bad, who offer wise advice and true sympathy. And in the Mita Sutta, the Buddha says, it is absolutely essential to seek out those who will endure our pain, who will share their secrets with you and keep your secrets safe, who will never abandon or look down on you when you're down and out. So again, there's this consistent um, uh, um, I would say uh, encouragement throughout the Dharma to find uh, people who are reliable. Uh, and of course, the good news I'm going to talk about in a moment is that even if we can't find too many of those people around us at certain points of our life, we can create the secure experience using our imagination. And that's one of the beautiful um, outcomes of the work of Daniel P. Brown at Harvard has shown, but I'll talk about that in a second. So the bad news is that as attachment patterns were formed uh, in the first few years of life before 
enduring memories uh, and are held in regions of the right orbital frontal that are inaccessible to consciousness, like also the right anterior cingulate. The most important and the most influential events of our life, we actually can't recall. We can know the feelings that are created by these experiences, but if the one area, one of the big areas that Freud got it wrong, Freud thought that we could somehow recall these early events and they, in being recalled, would magically lose their influence. Well, if you've ever worked in any therapeutic capacity, you know that simply uh, helping people uncover some of the uh, patterns in their childhood, that alone doesn't change their behavior. You can be very aware of the fact that one of your parents was an alcoholic or uh, a rageaholic or was uh, had borderline personality disorder or had uh, all kinds of anxiety disorders. And still, it might, knowing that will not necessarily change. In fact, it probably won't change anything. Interpretation-based treatments are not that successful in changing patterns if that's all people are doing, if they're just sitting around interpreting their childhood. Uh, what we need to do is connect with people who are secure. And that's one of the reasons why therapy can be so valuable, because the therapist for many people becomes the very first reliable uh, figure. They do um, uh, essentially the work where they create the corrective emotional experience for someone who didn't get secure, reliable attachment. They're someone who's interested, attentive. Uh, they are someone who is concerned about the well-being. They are uh, providing appreciation for the growth of the individual. So the good therapist is creating healing because they're giving the individual the core attachment needs that we need throughout all of our life, from cradle unto death. We need these we need availability. We need someone who's interested and curious about our internal experience, someone who's soothing, someone who's appreciative. So uh, Mary Main has shown that the combination of either doing both uh, therapy and finding a secure partner or se if not a partner, secure friendships in a community, maybe a recovery community or maybe a a therapy group or maybe in a spiritual center um, in finding secure available friendships that people can become what's called earn secure where they act increasingly confident and they choose more and more safe reliable partners and friends in five to ten years and that's, you know, that, well, that might sound like a lot, but actually it's uh, wonderful that it's possible at all because for a very, very long time in psychoanalysis and clinical psychology, there was this belief that you couldn't change emotional patterns at all, that we were kind of stuck with them. So everyone can actually gravitate towards secure or or earn secure states. There's numerous ways that Buddhist practice can address these underlying patterns. 
the key is priming the non-cognitive regions of our brains to discern safety from excitement and to really train us to respond to people and situations that create feelings of safety. Many people who grew up in insecure attachments don't know what safety feels like with another person. They're always constantly shutting down their emotions or they're ratcheting up their emotions, expecting to be abandoned. They're always in this state of high alert. So the role of priming, secure priming, is to create in us images that evoke feelings of safety and daily, every day practice for a short time, these practices that will evoke a, a feeling that of ease, comfort, reliability, someone is available. And in so doing, over time, when we meet people, we won't singularly be on, you know, focused on people who are exciting, thrilling, dramatic, the life of the party all the time, the people who are telling the loudest jokes and getting everyone's attention, but are not really uh, emotionally invested in us. It'll get us to start to respond to feelings of the kind of feelings you get from the best friend you've ever had, where you can just relax take your time. You don't have to keep the other person interested. You don't have to rush. You don't have to worry that they're going to lose interest. You're, you feel all of the, um, the muscles down the front of your body and your, your abdomen and your chest relax where you can breathe and you can actually feel at home. And that's what we're wanting to ingrain uh, Daniel P. Brown and others and uh, the, the Harvard study showed that the regions that hold our, these early attachment patterns or models don't really tell the difference between lived experience and imagined experience. So if you keep practicing visualizing people who are secure and attentive and who have time for us and who are available and who care about us, uh, then over time, it ingrains that state of safety that we want to use as a barometer moving forward in all of our relationships where we're gravitating towards people who elicit that sense of I'm at home. So, in uh, our practice today, we're going to do um, a couple of visualizations that are geared towards helping people to become earned secure. We're going to visualize someone in our life who has created a sense of care. Uh, when we're with them, we feel relaxed and we don't expect them to be overwhelming or abandoning. We expect them just to be present with us and interested in us. And then we're going to visualize a future relationship where we're with someone. It could be a friend or a partner or uh, any figure that is securely available. And in 
throughout Buddhist practice, one of the refuges has been Buddha Nusati, which is visualizing the Buddha as a secure, available, interested figure. So this practice goes back to the very beginning of Buddhist practice. So I hope something in there was interesting. Uh, in any event, let's actually begin to do a little work to change our attachment style, shall we? And practice <coughs> these visualizations. So I'm going to close my eyes. And I encourage you not only to close your eyes, but to swivel or move in such a way that there'll be no temptation to look at the screen. So all you'll be able to do is hear my voice, but if you're listening and attending on a laptop, the laptop will be out of your eyesight. Or if you're watching on an iPhone, just put the iPhone to the side in such a way that you can hear the uh, sporadic uh, guidance, but not see me. And just allow your awareness to be reeled in like a fishing line is being reeled back into the fishing rod reeling back in attention from the world around us to first into and down from the top of our head into our head, and then see if you could even lower awareness into the sensations of your body. And one practice I like to do is to land my attention on some part of my body that feels really comfortable. So not allowing the most uncomfortable or uninteresting sensations of the body to be what I gravitate towards, but just find some internal experience that feels really comfortable, a place you could reside for a little while. Sometimes it's been the uh, palms or the tops of my hands when I relax them on my legs. Sometimes it's been the eyes. I feel a softness and a state of ease behind in the eye sockets where the eyes are floating in two warm pools. Other times, if I put a hand on my heart center, it might be in that area. But there's so many different regions of the body and just find one area that feels like a good place to continually return throughout your practice. And of course, anytime you want, we can 
change this uh, anchor, the place in the body that we use as our home base. So at first, maybe you'll find that the belly is really relaxed and comfortable, but maybe over time you might find that the feeling of breathing in and following the energy as it moves up the front of the body towards the chest and the inhalation. And then that sensation of relieves when we have the exhalation and the energy rolls back down. Maybe that will be a sensation that's a good place to return. And from your home base in the body, you can become aware of all all the sensations that are surrounding you, sensations from the legs, from the arms, the back, the throat, the forehead. And observing all the rich sensations that are flickering on and off can be like observing a night sky, a constellation of stars. And if it's difficult to stay with the sensations of your body, just open as well to the sounds that surround you. Listening to them as if you've never heard sounds of cars or wind or crickets or people talking. Whatever the ambience of your environment, pretend you've never heard. This is, you're an anthropologist from a different planet. You've just landed in a human body. You've never experienced the sensations of the human body. You've never heard the sounds of the earth before. And we're just going to stay present with the sensations that are happening in the present, trying not to judge or add any commentary, just relaxing that need to have a view or an opinion about every experience. And one really beneficial part of the practice is sometimes when our minds will wander off into a thought, memory of the past, or planning, or a worry about the future, or just some distracting thought. That's not a bad thing. That's an opportunity to just, one, feel good that you've become aware that you're mind has wandered off into a virtual reality 
you're just going to bring your awareness back, find the most pleasant sensation in your body and just land there. The body is like the gateway to awakening. All awakening means is to awake from the daydream of our thoughts, worries, memories into the present. So if you have to wake up again and again and again in your practice, that's a lot of little awakenings you'll have.
So if you would like to practice the visualization, see if you can bring to mind an individual who in some way you associate with attentiveness, care, interest, someone who puts aside their at times their own dramas or concerns and pays attention and makes themselves available. Now this can be someone you've actually known or know right now in your life. Or it could just be some figure someone we associate with care. If you're capable of, with your mind's eye, creating an image, just visualize this individual, someone who's expressed kindness, attentiveness, looking at you, conveying those attributes just through their expression. And it's sometimes helpful to put a hand on one's heart center. If you can't visualize that well, Just repeat in your mind softly the name of someone who expressed true appreciation. And see if over time there's a feeling of ease or letting go in some muscles. Maybe the muscles that habitually defend against our emotional needs then get tight, clamped down. Muscles in the back maybe begin to relax or in the shoulders. Maybe the abdomen, abdominal muscles release a little bit. Maybe there's a subtle softening in the facial muscles. If you can find your breath becoming longer and more comfortable, your body feeling slightly
less tight, or maybe you just find yourself experiencing some greater degree of support or calm or some positive state, just become aware of how it expresses itself in your body. We want to become aware of the differences between excitement and safety. If you'd like to practice, you could, for a moment, bring your mind to someone from your past who was exciting, someone you wanted to know better but was not always responsive, who would disappear, who you didn't feel was always paying attention, someone who's alluring but not available, and see if you can... Note how your body responds to unavailable individuals versus the feeling you get from people who are available. And now for the second practice, it invites you to imagine a scene in the future where you're with a partner or a friend who elicits a sense of being absolutely safe and protected, or at least absolutely welcome to share anything that you're feeling and experiencing. This could be where you live or in a different place. It could be with someone you know, but preferably someone that you don't. You don't have to visualize them. Just imagine yourself in a scene. There's someone else there, and you feel absolutely safe and protected and relaxed. And if you can, bring to mind a way this person would create this feeling of safety and comfort and reassurance. What would they do? Would they gently rest a hand on a shoulder or would they bring you something warm? Or would they just sit quietly and listen? Imagine 
in this scene, this friend or partner or companion providing you with a sense they're delighted in everything you do, everything you express. There's no, there's no sense whatsoever that you have to keep them interested or that they'll be disappointed. And again, pay attention to the feelings that any of this, these visualizations evoke. We want to look for feelings associated with ease. Any state associated with feeling attended to or important to others. And just play around with the image for a moment to see if there's anything you can add that will just create a sense of ongoing, being at home and comfortable. So now, taking your time and letting go of any of the visuals if you conjure them, and just bring your awareness back to the present moment, the room around you, thanking you for your practice.